0: Welcome again, everybody, to the Pound for Pound podcast on the Fight Game Media website, podcast feed. This is your host, Rob Silver Jr. Today, we will be talking basically, exclusively the 154-pound division historically from today and 20, 15 to 20 years ago because we will be reviewing last night's Jamel Charlo Brian Castano undisputed junior middleweight championship of the world super super welterweight however you want to say it last night for only the second time in the history of the 154 pound division do we have an undisputed champion at super welterweight/junior junior middleweight. Second part of the show, we will be talking about the last undisputed junior middleweight champion of the world and the 40th greatest fighter of the last 45 years on my ongoing series on the fightgamemedia.com website as you people that have been listening know is that on the fightgamemedia.com website, I've been writing my articles on the 45 greatest fighters of all time. Recently, my number 14, Alexis Arguello, was uh, published on the website. Well, today, I will be reading excerpts for my number 40, which is the last undisputed junior middleweight champion of the world before last night, and that is Ronald Winky Wright. Before we start on Jamel Charlo, once again, I want to talk about who I consider the next great welterweight champion of the world, the next great welterweight in the historically rich, latent division, a division that has had so many great fighters throughout his history at 147 pounds. If you go back, it's endless. Henry Armstrong, Sugar Ray Robinson, Kid Gavilon. Carmen Basilio, Emil Griffith, uh, Louis Rodriguez, Jose Napolis, Wilfred Benitez, Pepino Cuevas, Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Thomas Hearns. And I'm going to end it right there. There's been great ones since, of course, Errol Spence, Terrence Crawford, but piggyback on Thomas Hearns. Last night, to uh, open up this show, we saw Jerron Boots Ennis eerily fight like a primetime Thomas Hearns. And what is crazy, the irony of Boots Ennis not only looking like Thomas Hearns in his style, the way he shoots that beautiful left jab or right jab, because unlike Thomas, Boots can fight either from the softball position or from the orthodox position. Thomas was always an orthodox fighter shooting out the jab. That being said, the way he throws that jab is Thomas Hearns-like. His straight right cross, and uh, he's one of the few fighters, uh, Boots Ennis. And we're talking uh, in the history of boxing, Marvin Hagler and Terrence Crawford, other that come to mind, who not only throws a tremendous right cross, but has a spectacular right hook as well. Uh, Last night, he put uh, his opponent... Clayton Custio Clayton to sleep with a beautiful left jab right cross combination eerily reminiscent of Thomas Hearns he blinds you with the jab shoots the right cross lands it and Clayton ducked down and got hit in the back of the head because he was ducking down and his equilibrium fell off he fell down and he was damn near knocked down three times by one shot boots and his second round knockout and I mentioned the irony of of boots and thomas hearns after 29 fights both fighters had the same exact record boots and this is now 29 and 0 with 27 knockouts after thomas hearns first 29 fights he had 27 knockouts and man just a tremendous fighter ladies and gentlemen If you've been listening to my old shows on World Championship Boxing uh, the last 18 months here on Fight Game Media Pound for Pound Podcast, you know that I have been uh, just on top of this man as far as him being the next great welterweight. I've said it since 2018, 2019, that this man will be the next legendary 147-pound fighter. Put your house on it. Guaranteed. Who does he fight next? Huh? Keith Thurman, if you are stupid enough to get in the ring with Boots Ennis, you'll be spending the night in the ICU because the only way you could beat Boots Ennis is if Boots breaks both hands. Now, on to the main event that night in Carson, California. First of all, before I get into a fight, which was a tremendous fight, I'm sick and tired of... Mauro Mama Mia Ranallo. He's all hyper purpley. Uh He is just ridiculous. And by the way, no, Mauro, Jamal, Jamel, Jamel Charlo is not the first undisputed 154-pound champion of all time. Don't give me this four-belt-era bullshit. Undisputed is undisputed, all right? I will be talking about the first undisputed 154 pound champion after I go through this fight. Let's stop with the bullshit. Let's stop with oh four belt the WBO was considered a uh, a bogus title Until around 2009 2010. No one gave a damn about that title. That was an Eastern European title. All right That was it. Well, so let's stop with the nonsense and as far as um undisputed junior middleweights of all time, and I'm going to bring back up Thomas Hearns. Thomas Hearns would have been the undisputed junior middleweight champion of the world when he knocked out Roberto Duran back in June of 1984. He was a WBC champion coming to the fight. Duran was the WBA champion until right before the fight, he was stripped of his WBA title. Hearns knocked out Duran in what should have been an undisputed world junior middleweight title fight but WBA like all these criminal organizations the WBA the WBO the IBF the WBC there are a bunch of criminal cartel organizations there are a bunch of organizations that's job that main goal is to profit off the backs of fighters by giving them bogus titles so I don't give a goddamn about these organizations. They could die tomorrow. We, and no longer will, will fighters have to fork over money to these organizations to defend a title that they won fair and square by being the best in their field. Now, on to Jamel Charlo versus Brian Castaño. Jamel Charlo for the beautiful fight. I don't know what the hell Mara Ronaldo and Abner Maris were looking at. Yes, Castano forced the action, but Castano had no defense whatsoever last night. He was attempting to lure Charlo into a brawl, and Charlo fought a beautiful fight because every time he would exchange with Castano, he'd throw and land beautiful counter left hooks, right crosses, and uppercuts. Uh, First six rounds, uh, I don't know what Steve Farhood was looking at. Look, I love Steve Farhood. He's longtime boxing writer, great boxing announcer, great color commentator. One of the few great color commentators slash announcers out there in the sport today. But he was giving Castano too much credit for his aggression because Castano had no defense last night. He was getting hit with everything. First six rounds, I had Charlo winning five of the six. Was some of the rounds close? Yes. But Charlo's punching was so damn effective last night that he was hitting Castano at will. In the seventh round, he finally staggered uh, Castano with a beautiful right cross down the pipe. And he should have went to the body. He could have stopped him in the seventh round, but he let Castano off the hook. And you know what? It's fair because he did get him out of there later on. And he was just dominating for rounds eight, nine. I gave Castano the knife round out of out hustling Charlo, but he still couldn't stop those wicked counter punches from happening. By the way, Charlo's jab was working beautifully last night. Castano was just pouring with his jab to get inside, but Charlo was landing that, that jab all night long and countering off that jab. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. 10th round, Castano, fighting as wild as wilder now than he did prior, walked into a beautiful left hook that put him out on his feet. He went down. He got up, and then Charlo systematically put him away. And what have I been telling people since I was a little boy? What my father used to tell me is that when a fighter has you hurt, the fighter needs to go to the Body because the man who's hurt, the fighter who's hurt, is going to be in, uh, instinct um instinctively protecting his face, protecting his head. Charlo landed a beautiful left hook to the rib cage. Castaño goes down, referee stops the fight. 10th round knockout for the second undisputed 154-pound champion of all time. He um should have been the third, but Durant was stripped, so. Officially, the second greatest, 150, not second greatest. No, no, Charlo's not the second greatest 154-pound champion. Second undisputed, official undisputed 154-pound champion of all time. Uh, Where does Charlo go from here? 154-pound division is arguably the most gifted and deep division in boxing. You have um, another brawler. And Sebastian Fedora, a guy who has no defense whatsoever. Yes, he's 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. He weight bullies and beats his guys down. Charlo has the perfect style to obliterate Fedora. You have Tim Zhu, who's still unproven. Yes, he's moving up and he's beating. And, and he fought a great, great fight. He was rocked in the fight. He was hurt. Uh, but he came back and, and uh, he fought great in his last fight. But... Is he ready to face Jamel Charlo? We'll, we're going to know sooner or later because both Zoo and Fandora are mandatory con- uh, challenges for their respective criminal drug cartel organizations to face Jamel Charlo. Or does Charlo say fuck the belts and fight the winner of the proposed? Errol Spence, Terrence Crawford fight. Because I believe after Crawford and Spence fight each other that they both will be moving up to 154, making that division even more loaded. You got Charles Conwell, up and coming, 154-pound contender, who's a tremendous fighter. You've got Tony Harrison, super bad, who deserves a shot at Charlo because he beat Charlo, the only man to ever defeat Charlo. And uh, Charlo won the rematch, so he's deserved of a third fight, and outside of Castano, Charlo's toughest opponent has been super bad Tony Harrison. You got Julian J. Rock Williams, 154-pound division loaded. Charlo's the king of the hell. And now we transition to the first official 154-pound undisputed world champion. And that is my number 40 fighter of the last 45 years my number 40th ronald winky wright and after i read this uh synopsis of his career at 154 pounds and middleweight and, and um light heavyweight i will run down my five greatest junior middleweights of all time by the way my uh my top four are on fightgamemedia.com. I've written articles on the top four that I will be talking about after I talk about Ronald Winky Wright's uh, article. By the way, Ronald is among that top four. Okay, the article starts off. In the 45 years since I started watching boxing, the three most avoided fighters of that era were Aaron Pryor, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Ronald Winky Wright. Winky, like Hagler, was an incredibly gifted softball, which is probably the same reason the best fighters at 154 pounds avoided him throughout his first nine years of his career. Like Hagler and Pryor, as soon as Winky was able to get elite fighters to fight him, he dominated the opposition, which is why he's the 40th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Wright was an excellent prospect early in his career, and yet he was shunned by all the major United States promoters and television networks. The reason being was that he was a softball boxer who was hard to hit. No one wanted to put their young prospects or contenders at 154 in the ring with Winky because they felt it was a high-risk, low-reward fight. Ricky was. Winky responded by going to Europe in 1992 where he was able to hone his skills for the next six years. Wright's first 154-pound title opportunity came against WBA champion Julio Cesar Vasquez on August 21st, 1994. The then-undefeated 21-year-old Winky was too inexperienced to defeat such a cagey, cagey, unorthodox fighter in, in Vasquez, as he was knocked down several times before losing a unanimous decision. The loss only made Winky more determined to become world champion, as he won his next nine fights before getting a shot at the WBO 154-pound title on May 17, 1996, against Bronco McCart. Winky traveled to McCart's hometown of Monroe, Michigan, and won a split decision for his first world title. By the way, disclaimer on that, 1996... I didn't regard the WBO titles as nothing more than a minor league Mickey Mouse title all right okay I'm gonna be fair it's is listed as Winky Wright's first world title and I wrote that but I should have written in the article that no one took the WBO seriously I didn't the only people that took the WBO seriously back in 1996 were, were, were the guys that held the, w, the various divisional titles from the WBO and the people that worked for the WBO, right? Wright went back to Europe and successfully defended his title three times before journeying out to South Africa. Derry defended against the tough Namib, Namib, Namibian fighter Harry Simon. Wright was robbed of his title in the, dress, in the dressing room as the verdict was originally scored a draw. While in his locker room, preparing to leave, an official from the South African Boxing Commission explained to Winky that the scoring on one of the judges' scorecards was tabulated incorrectly and that Simon was in actuality the winner and new champion. After being swindled of this title, Winky went back to the United States and resumed his career. It wouldn't be the last time he'd experienced larceny in the ring. After winning an IBF title elimination fight, Wright received a shot against IBF 154-pound champion Fernando Vargas on December 4th, 1999. The fight was televised on HBO. This was the first time my father and I had ever seen Wright fight on television, and although we heard he was a slick boxer, we didn't think he could defeat one of the rising young stars in boxing. Vargas had been on television since his pro debut and had become a very popular power-punching champion. Right away, my father and I were impressed with the way Winky Winky fought. Winky stayed right in front of Vargas and made him miss all night long while landing several rapid-fire combinations. Wright had a unique defensive posture. He'd keep his long arms practically glued to his face and deflect his opponent's punches off his gloves and arms with that defensive stance he was able to hit you at will because he was always in position to hit you with his tremendous right jab and hand speed vargas's face looked like it had been hit with a baseball bat after the 12 rounds were completed my father and i were shocked and dismayed when vargas was awarded the decision it was the worst it was one of the worst robberies my father and i ever had the displeasure to see once again winky had to get back to the drawing board Winky never received a rematch against Vargas as Vargas lost his title a year later to the legendary Puerto Rican fighter Felix Tito Trinidad. Instead of defending against Winky, Trinidad moved up to 160. Winky fought and easily defeated Robert Frazier by decision on October 12, 2001 to finally win the IBF title vacated by Trinidad. After easily defending his title four times, Wright was ready. Wedi- White. Wright. Winky was ready for the biggest fight of his career, a unification title fight on March 13, 2004, against WBA and WBC title holder Sugar Shane Mosley. Now, I want to explain this. And don't give me this four-belt undisputed bullshit. In 2004, when Winky Wright fought Shane Mosley, Winky Wright was the IBF champion, Mosley was the WBA and WBC champion, the media, the networks... Everybody said that this was for the undisputed 154 pound champion championship. No one even talked about oh the winners got to fight the WBO title to unify no because like I said, the WBO back then was a bogus organization. Now all four organizations in my opinion are bogus, but when it came to what the general public and the media and the hardcore boxing fans thought of the WBO at the time, the WBO was considered the CBA of boxing, okay? The CBA of boxing. Uh, old old basketball fans, you remember the CBA? That's what the WBO was looked upon back in 2004. Okay, on back to the article. Just as he did against Vargas, Wright put on a defensive clinic against the favored Mosley. Mosley was unable to penetrate Winky's guard and avoid his sizzling combinations. Mosley took a similar beating as Vargas, and Winky easily won a 12-round decision to become the first fighter in the history of the division to simultaneously hold the WBA, WBC, and IBF 154-pound championships, the first undisputed champion in the history of the division. Eight months later, Wright soundly defeated Mosley in the rematch. A few months later, Wright vacated all his titles to move up to 160 pounds. Wright's first fight at middleweight occurred on, March, on May 14, 2005, against Puerto Rican legend Felix Trinidad. Trinidad was one of the biggest stars of the previous 10 years, and he had avoided Winky at all costs. Trinidad had suffered a brutal 12-round beating at the hands of Bernard Hopkins in September of 2001 and was truly never the same after that fight. He wouldn't have beaten Winky in his prime, never mind at the then age of 32. Winky put on a virtuoso performance that night against Tito, landing his sizzling right jab at Will while easily blocking the vast majority of the Puerto Rican icons' vaunted power shots. Winky won every minute of every round to easily win a 12-round decision. Then after defeating middleweight contender Sam Solomon in in his next fight, Winky, Winky Wright signed to fight the Ring Magazine and lineal 160-pound champion Jermaine Taylor in an attempt to become a two-division world champion. On the night of June 17, 2006, Wright and Taylor fought a very spirited and underrated fight in terms of ring action. Taylor, at the time, had one of the best left jabs in the sport to counter Winky's own great right jab After after 11 rounds. I felt Taylor needed a knockout to win as I had Winky winning seven rounds to four after 11. Winky all but gave away the 12th and final round as a desperate Taylor outworked him the entire three minutes of the final stanza. This lack of urgency on Winky cost him the fight in middleweight championship. By winning that last round, Taylor escaped with a draw. It would turn out to be the last great moment of Winky's career. A year later, on July 21st, 2007, Winky moved up to 175, the light heavyweight division, to defend the 42-year-old Hopkins for his Ring Magazine light heavyweight title. Although six and a half years younger than the Wiley Hopkins, it was Winky who looked looked much older that night, as for the first time in his career, he was outboxed. Hopkins totally dominated right to win the decisive 12-round decision. Wright will fight two more times over the next five years, losing decisions to Paul Williams and Peter Quillen while looking nothing like the great fighter he was the nights he defeated Mosley, Trinidad, and the robbery against Fernando Vargas. He would end his career with a record of 51 wins, six losses, and one draw. Ronald Winky Wright was such a technical marvel inside the ring. He was a boxer who made his opponents miss by staying in the pocket, not having to move much, and using his incredibly long arms to block and and deflect their punches. He had a pinpoint right -right jab that was one of the greatest jabs ever utilized by a softball. He threw punches and combinations and everything off his jab. Because he was so relaxed in the ring And didn't move around too much He was as fresh in the 12th round As he was in the first first round At 154 pounds Legendary fighters such as Trinidad And Oscar De La Hoya Purposely ducked him Wright would travel to your hometown And kick your ass in front of your hometown fans All of these attributes Add up to Winky Being the 40th greatest fighter Of the last 45 years Ladies and gentlemen You can go to the same website, fightgamemedia.com, where my series of the 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 years is ongoing, and you could look at the series I did on the greatest super welterweight slash junior middleweight slash 154-pound fighters of all time. I only wrote four because at the time, a bunch of fighters, the Charlo brothers, Erislandy Lara, and Canelo were so close in accomplishment at 154, that I didn't have a decisive number five. After last night, we have a decisive number five. Jamel Charlo is the number five greatest junior middleweight of all time. Um, he has the best resume at 154 um, since Terry Norris and since uh, Ronald Wright and since Thomas Hearns and since Mike McCallum. He's fought basically everybody at 154. That's not Sue Fundora, the two up and Charles Conwell, the three up-and-coming, exciting young 154-pounders. Last night, clinched it after struggling in his first fight against Castaño, and many people felt he was lucky to escape with a draw against Castaño. Like I mentioned earlier in the program, he stepped his game up. His counterpunching was on point, knocked out Castaño, Became the second greatest 154, second, not the second greatest, second undisputed 154 pound um, champion and secures the number five spot on my list. Why isn't he higher? Because the four guys above him are all legendary Hall of Famers who had incredible wins and were, in my opinion, just greater fighters at 154. Number four, Ronald Winky Wright. I just read all his attributes If you look at Charlo's greatest wins at 154, Jamel Charlo doesn't have a win against a single Hall of Fame eligible fighter. fighter, He's never beaten anybody at 154 that's going to the Hall of Fame. Ronald Winky Wright dominated Shane Mosley in two fights, and Mosley is in the International Boxing Hall of Fame. My number three greatest 154 pound. Uh, champion of all time terrible Terry Norris Norris's biggest problem was he had a very bad chin and and he was a three-time 154 pound champion and yes he defeated Hall of Fame fighters but he defeated several of them the two main ones Donald Kirby and Sugar Ray Leonard, when they were way past their prime, way past their prime. He beat a washed up Meldrick Taylor. Um, He got uh, knocked out by Simon Brown in one of the biggest upsets in boxing history. Turned around and beat Simon Brown. Three time, 154 pound champion. Great boxer puncher. Beautiful fighter. Only problem is he didn't have a chin, and that's why he's at number three. Number two. The body snatcher, Mike McCollum, one of the most avoided fighters in the history of boxing. He won the title that was stripped from that was stripped from Roberto Duran by defeating Sean Mannion in Master Square Garden in October of 1984 to become the WBA champion. And he defended that title three years. And in those three years, he was an incredible, incredible 154 pound champion he knocked out julian jackson totally obliterating julian jackson in the second round and then july of 1987 he fought a very very skillful former undisputed 147 pound champion donald curry and for the first four rounds curry was boxing beautifully against mccallum mccallum biggest problems were against guys that could move, and Donald Curry was fighting beautifully, beautifully, but the great equalizer was McCollum's left hook, as in the fifth round, Curry went straight back and got caught with a picture-perfect left hook that paralyzed him. He couldn't get up. McCollum wins by fifth-round knockout, and Vacates the title to go on to, to win world titles at middleweight and light heavyweight, but as far as 154 pound goes McCollum never lost and the two biggest wins of his career were knockouts over Hall of Fame fighters Julian Jackson and terrible Terry Norris and my greatest 154 pound champion of all time the legendary Thomas Hitman Hearns, my all-time favorite fighter, the first fighter that I followed from the beginning of his career in 1977 to the end of his career. Thomas Hearns at 154 pounds was at his utmost best. And after defeating Wilfred Benitez, and he outboxed a master boxer in Wilfred Benitez, he broke his hand midway through the fight and Hearns, with just a jab alone, beat a master technician in Wilfred Benitez, December of 1982 in New Orleans, Louisiana, I believe. And people could correct me. December 3rd, 1982 was the date of that fight. After beating Benitez, and Benitez is better than any fighter that uh, Jamel Charlo ever defeated, okay? He would go on to have his most sensational, destructive knockout of his career, June of 1984 against Roberto Duran in what was supposed to be for the undisputed 154-pound title, but Duran was stripped of the title because back then, the WBA did not want to have the same world champions at the WBC. The WBA, on and on and on again, would strip their champion of the title before they'd fight for a unification fight and it happened to Mike McCollum twice in his career okay at 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 a at a middleweight Mike McCollum was to was supposed to fight James Tony for the I'm sorry it only happened to McCollum one time and that was when he fought James Tony and um I'll talk more about that fight in a future episode when I talk about uh, the body snatcher Mike McCollum. Anyway, back to the WBA. The WBA would do it twice. um, at at hundred sixty pounds in nineteen eight March of nineteen eighty nine when the their WBA champion Sumbu Kalambe, fought the IBF champion Michael Nunn. They stripped Calum Bay the WBA title before none knocked him out in the first round. And then when Mike McCollum fought James Tony in December of '91, they stripped McCollum before he fought Tony to a 12 round draw in one of the greatest middleweight fights of all time. But Thomas Hearns that night was. Robbed the WBA title. He wasn't given a chance to win a title that he rightfully deserved because he obliterated Roberto Duran in the second round, knocked out Duran, and Duran was comatose on the cat on the canvas for several minutes. It was the first time Roberto Duran was ever put to sleep, and that was the climax of Thomas Hearns' career. He never looked better. That the night that Thomas Hearns knocked out Roberto Duran. There is another 154 pound in the history of the sport that could have defeated Hearns that night. Now, as far as the top five, who could have beaten Hearns? Definitely Mike McCollum could have defeated Thomas Hearns because he had a great chin, and he was a great body puncher, and Hearns had problem with inside fighters that can go to the body that could take a punch and that could hit. Case in point, his losses to Marvelous Marvin Hagler And Sugar Ray Leonard. So Thomas Hearns, my greatest 154-pound fighter of all time. For more on those four fighters, the top four, Winky, Terry Norris, Mike McCollum, and Thomas Hearns, go to FightGameMedia.com, search for my greatest junior middleweight, super welterweights of all time, and I have articles on all four as to why they are where they are in terms of my rankings ladies and gentlemen it was again my pleasure to talk to you guys i'm having fun doing these solo shows uh shout outs to my man uh john Larocca because he does an incredible classic wrestling podcast on fight game uh uh on the fight game podcast uh feed and i would i would I highly recommend you guys go uh, listen to his show, Take It Home. There's another great classic wrestling podcast on the Fight Game Media free podcast feed. And that is Write This Down with the legendary all-time greatest Japanese wrestling historian Fumi Saito and one of the heads of the Fight Game Media podcast and a media website, and that is Justin Nipper. These guys do an incredible job, and Fumi reminds me of me when he talks Japanese wrestling. When he talks Japanese wrestling history, it's akin to me talking boxing history. Shit comes off the top of his head nonstop. He doesn't have to read anything or anything. He just comes off the top of the head. The professor of Japanese wrestling, for you old school wrestling fans, I recommend John The Rock rockers podcast and Fumi Saito and Justin Nippers' podcast on the Fight Game Media Free Podcast web um, feed. Now, for guys that want bonus content, including a monthly show on my own, go to the go to the uh, the notes in the description of this podcast. Click on the Patreon a link if you guys are interested. If you guys are interested, for $5 a month, you get an extra show of mine, exclusive only to Patreon members, and that is my greatest upset in boxing history. I'll be recording one soon on uh, the fall of 1978, uh, incredible upset of Villamar Fernandez over Alexis Arguella, which is the latest article I've written on the fight game, media.com on his uh him being the 14th greatest fighter in the last 45 years in my opinion but besides my extra show that's exclusive to patreon members you have john laraca and the head of the fight game media empire uh Garrett gonzalez double g they have an ongoing series where they look at the so Monday Night Raws from 1997 and 1998, they give an they give an incredible rundown and a, a comprehensive rundown. They talk about the angles back then because they were young enough. Because at the time, uh, Garrett would have been tw- 21 years old and John. John and Garrett about the same age, so they were reading The Observer. They were hardcore wrestler fans, so they remember everything from that era, so they're the perfect men to break this down. I highly recommend that show. And then you have exclusive content from AEW, WWE, Impact, Bloodsport, UFC, Bellator, Uh, the best coverage of pro wrestling and mixed martial arts on the planet, on the Fight Game Media Patreon uh, exclusive content as well as the free pod. And if you guys have listened to the other shows, you, you, you know what you're missing if you're not a Patreon member. Um, and, of course, my little boxing show on the Patreon feed. Ladies and gentlemen, I will be back next week with my number 39 fighter of the last 45 years. as far- And also a rundown of the biggest fights of next weekend. Until then, peace and blessings.